Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapeFearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. The Bellamy's barely had enough time to put away their housewarming gifts before war erupted around them. When the wealthy and influential family moved into their new home, now known as the Bellamy Mansion at Market Street and Fifth Avenue in Wilmington. It was February 1861, and the rift between the North and the South was only growing wider with each passing day. By the time they officially welcomed their first guest over to celebrate in March, much of the South had already seceded from the Union, and Confederate supporters in Wilmington were demanding that North Carolina follow suit. They soon got their wish, and less than two months after the Bellamy's settled into their new mansion, the Civil War had begun. It's interesting to think about today how the most famous historic home in the Cape Fear only existed for a matter of months in that pre-war antebellum era with which it is so closely associated. During that time, the Bellamys, led by patriarch John Dillard Bellamy and his devout wife Eliza, were one of the most prominent families in the area. Their wealth put them at the center of culture and conversation in Wilmington. A man of many trades, John was said to be so influential that he often drew more attention than elected officials. And it was no coincidence that he was also one of the largest slave owners in North Carolina. An indentured workforce that he spread out across his numerous properties and businesses. It was war and an unexpected epidemic that would drive the family from their grandiose new home for several years. But that absence only briefly dimmed their power and influence in the region. For more than a hundred years, the Bellamy Mansion and its occupants held a place at the center of nearly every defining moment in Wilmington's history. The stories and scars of which were long ago etched in its walls. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, 
and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're talking about one of the area's most popular and well-known historic destinations, the Bellamy Mansion. But no story about the unmistakable house would be complete without looking at the family for whom it was built, whose devotion to the South and its ideals before and after the Civil War kept them at the heart of Wilmington's politics, economy, and racial injustices for more than a century. Had we told the story of the Bellamy Mansion on the show last year, the episode you're about to hear might have sounded a little different. But 2020 has changed things. Recent Black Lives Matter protests have prompted people across the country to look at our antebellum history with more scrutinous eyes. And that gaze is directed more often than not at the Bellamy Mansion. And that attention isn't unfounded, considering how the narratives and realities of slavery and Southern identity run about as deep as the mansion's foundation on the property. Its meticulous restoration has also preserved it as a product of that time that deserves continued research and education. So for this episode, I'm going to introduce you to the Bellamy family and detail the construction of their house, taking us right up to the doorstep of the Civil War. Then, we'll transition into a remotely recorded interview with Bellamy Mansion Museum Executive Director Gareth Evans and site historian Leslie Randall Morton for a discussion of history, preservation, and perhaps most importantly, how the Bellamy Mansion is perfectly set up to answer those questions that you may have about our history right now. So sit back and settle in for this extended episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we explore the historic heart of the Bellamy Mansion and its place in the cultural conversations of race and Southern identity. One of the starkest and most often shared recollections in the history of Wilmington happened on the front porch of the Bellamy Mansion in the fall of 1862. At the time, the Bellamys had only lived in their home at Fifth and Market for just over a year when yellow fever began ravaging the city. It had arrived on board a blockade runner named Kate, which had docked at the foot of Market Street that August following a long journey from Nassau in the Bahamas. Within weeks, the dead were already piling up, and John D. Bellamy was weighing his options on what he could do to keep his family safe. The story goes that John D. Bellamy Jr. stepped out on his front porch and watched as wagon loads of corpses, as he described them, rolled by en route to Oakdale Cemetery, 
which had opened up a public grave for victims of the fever. Although no pictures exist of the disease's impact on the city, this vision of death passing by the Bellamy Mansion has persisted as a vividly grim image of the time. But it also shows just how central the house was and still is to Wilmington's history, even in a time of war and disease. It's likely at that moment that John and his family began planning their escape from the city, something the wealthiest in the community could afford to do, and most did. In fact, there was such a dramatic exodus at the outset of the fever that it cut Wilmington's population nearly in half within a matter of days. While it was yellow fever that would draw the Bellamys away from their beloved new home, it was the war and the threat of the ever-advancing Union army that would keep them in exile. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Before we can tell the story of the mansion, let's meet the family that came to define it. John Dillard Bellamy was born in All Saints Parish, South Carolina, on September 18, 1817, on a plantation owned by his father and run by the work of slave labor. In 1835, he moved to Wilmington and began his schooling to become a doctor, the first in his family to do so. It was there that he met his future wife, Eliza, the well-educated daughter of Dr. William Harris, John's mentor in medical school. After Harris's unexpected death, John took over his practice and the role of caring for Eliza's big family, which included numerous siblings. But that didn't keep the newlyweds from forging ahead with their own plans for a family, eventually welcoming ten children. By the 1850s, John had also diversified his resume in Wilmington, where he became a planter, a successful merchant, a rising leader in the banking industry, and a stakeholder in the Wilmington and Weldon Railroad line. He owned two plantations outside of Wilmington, the one he grew up on in South Carolina, where he had inherited more than a thousand acres and dozens of slaves, and one in Brunswick County, known as Groveley, which was primarily a produce plantation. He also ran what has been described as a lucrative turpentine and tar business out of Columbus County. To say the Bellamys were well-to-do would be an understatement. John's multitude of interests in nearly every blossoming industry in Wilmington positioned the family to greatly benefit from the city's seemingly prosperous future. It also meant that he was part of the discussions that ran the city, even though he had never been elected to public office himself. Although the family lived in the former residence of once Governor Benjamin Smith, it was kind of expected that they needed their own home, one built as a symbol of their status in the city. So in 1859, John set out to use his considerable wealth to build a considerable home. And although he wasn't really known for being flashy, the resulting mansion would say otherwise. He purchased prime real estate at the corner of what is now Market and Fifth, 
but was then the edge of the developed town. He hired James A. Post, the architect behind Thalian Hall, and his assistant architect, Rufus Bennell, who had just moved to town from New Jersey. According to the Bellamy Mansion Museum, it's through Bennell's diary and the memoir of John and Eliza's daughter Ellen that much of what is known about the construction of the house was learned. Post and Bennell would spend plenty of time conceiving the house before work on the massive structure began. By the fall of 1859, the excavation of the basement was underway, but materials were still coming in from other states. In her memoir, Ellen remembered that after dinner on Christmas night, 1859, the entire family walked the few blocks to their future residence to survey the progress being made. They would do this again the following year, but this time, work was coming to an end. Still, they wouldn't spend a true Christmas as a family in the home until after the war. The house itself would prove to be a massive example of scale and vision. Spread across 10,000 square feet, it had four stories with a Belvedere lookout at the very top and 22 rooms in total. Outside, its towering appearance was punctuated by 14 25-foot Corinthian columns installed around three sides to hold up the roof. At the rear of the property, a brick carriage house and slave quarters were also constructed, the latter of which still stands. Although the home had been dreamed up on the page by Post and Bennell, with an assist from John and Eliza's eldest daughter, Belle, it was slaves and free black men who worked as the primary builders to make it a reality. The slaves came from across the region, some already owned by the Bellamies, others contracted out by fellow slave owners. The free black men who worked on the house were carpenters and artisans who lived in the city. Among them was William Benjamin Gould, an enslaved plasterer whose contributions to the house were only uncovered in the 1990s, thanks to the discovery of the initials he had discreetly signed in his work. We covered Gould's incredible story in an episode of the show last year, which detailed his harrowing escape from servitude under the cover of the Yellow Fever in 1862, and his renowned military service with the Union Navy. Gould is now recognized outside the mansion with his own state highway historic marker, installed in 2018. Also known to have worked on the house were Elvis Artis, a free house carpenter often hired by the city on projects through the late 1800s, and Henry Taylor, a slave who established himself as a popular carpenter and eventual grocery store owner. His son, Robert R. Taylor, would go on to become the first accredited black architect in America. From its very conception as a blueprint on a page, the Bellamy Mansion's story was woven together with that of the black history of Wilmington and the antebellum era, an intertwined story that is still told today. 
When the Bellamys finally moved into their home in February 1861, they lived like royalty of the time. They had the luxury of running water and even had lines installed to provide gas lighting throughout the house. They wanted for nothing, a sensation they would reportedly come to miss at the height of the coming war. When South Carolina seceded from the Union in December 1860, following the election that saw Abraham Lincoln clinch the presidency, John, an ardent advocate for the South, famously held a bonfire in the streets of Wilmington to celebrate. According to the museum, he bought up every empty tar barrel in town, lined the streets with them, and then set them ablaze. He hired a band to lead a musical march and Minutemen to fire off a 100-gun salute. It was an unavoidable show of support for the growing Southern cause, and it easily overshadowed any cases being made by those locally who were still fighting to remain part of the Union. John and his fellow secessionists would get their way soon enough. When North Carolina seceded from the Union, on May 20, 1861. With many of its more elaborate building materials outsourced to the north, the Bellamy Mansion had been finished just in time for trade routes to shut down. A year and a half later, as I mentioned earlier, yellow fever reared its ugly head in Wilmington. After the Bellamys packed up their belongings, they headed west to Floral College in Randolph County, to not only put distance between themselves and the disease, but also the port, which was only going to become more important to the Confederate cause, and therefore a target for the Union. Back at the mansion, they left a single person behind, their enslaved cook, Sarah, who was put in charge of the house. Although family members would visit on occasion, the Bellamys would not return to Wilmington permanently until after the war. But even in the face of the Confederacy's loss and the new reality for the South, the family proved resilient as the next generation took control of its legacy. For in the coming decades, it was them who kept the Bellamy name at the center of everything that would come next in Wilmington whether it be revolutionary or revolting. Joining me now to continue the story of the Bellamy Mansion are two people who know it very well, the executive director of the Bellamy Mansion, Gareth Evans, and its operations manager and site historian, Leslie Randall Morton. Thank you both for having me here today at the Bellamy Mansion. Thanks for coming. It's great to you know be able to discuss this. Absolutely. And uh, again, like I said, as we've been doing these episodes during the pandemic, we have been taking the show kind of on the road. And so we are at the Bellamy Mansion today. And I think it's one of those sites that really anyone who's been in Wilmington for a while has either passed by or come and visit. But I think one thing that we can all agree on is there's so much history here. And so there's so much to talk about. And uh, I'm ready to dive into it. This, the What our listeners have already heard so far will have been an introduction of the Bellamy family, and then uh, a construction history of the house, just kind of setting the stage for what's here. And then I brought us up to the Civil War. So that's where we're going to start. 
Now, before we go into the Civil War and kind of how it affects the family, I want to let you two talk a little bit about who were the Bellamy's to the Wilmington community at this time. John Bellamy moved here from Horry County, South Carolina, as a young man at a time when Wilmington was really coming to its own as the largest city by population in North Carolina, was becoming an economic, political, and cultural hub. And so as he moves here to pursue a career in medicine, different than anyone in his family had ever done, he does get the official medical degree. He goes to Philadelphia after you know uh, attending an apprenticeship here under William Harris and comes back and becomes a physician, which wasn't as lucrative as many people would think today, you know, uh, uh, surgeons or anything of that nature. But he shifts himself within the first couple of decades of uh, being a professional in Wilmington to being a merchant, uh, to being really a a businessman. He had his hands in almost everything, a major stockholder of the Wilmington and Weldon Railroad, which was the longest in the world at the time. He's helping found banks, the Bank of the Cape Fear. He sat on pretty much every board and had friends and family on every board. He was a very political man, but never a politician. And, uh, and then, of course, his holdings also go to, to show that uh, land. He started really accumulating land, ended up with two what we would consider sort of plantation sites, one in Brunswick County, one in Columbus County, and that uh, was one of the largest slaveholders in the state of North Carolina, almost 115 individuals, his uh, name spread across three counties. And out of about 35,000 slaveholders around 1860, there were less than 120 men that owned that many enslaved workers across the state. So I think that in a snapshot can just sort of show uh, what the, the family, the position was. And of course, his children go on to be, again, very influential here later. Um, but the style of the house is actually a little bit, I always say it lets you into the mind of John D. Bellamy, and he was pretty old-fashioned. He was about balance and symmetry. Um, architectural historian um, John Michael Blatch has said that this type of, of, of home with this Greek, these big columns and all this balance and order and symmetry probably reflected the way he was internally, and it was kind of getting into an archaic style. This was actually not so in in vogue when it was uh, constructed around 1859. What would it have meant to this this city to see such a grand house being built by a family like this? Well, I'll take one part of that, is that they built this house, and James F. Post is the architect, right after they built uh, Thalian Hall around the corner. So if you think about it, that's the civic version, and then they come around and build this in an Italian neoclassical style. So right at the cusp of the Civil War, and after there have been building booms ahead of that, like in the 1840s was a big building boom downtown, you're coming to like, what is the zenith, something like that, of that kind of high-end, very showy architecture. And that's, you know, that's what this is. It's a statement of wealth. It's a statement of ego, intent. One of the things that we always talk about is the fact that it's raised up, right? It's slightly higher than grade, it's on a ridge line, which leads back down to the river. It's on a busy crossroads, and it's five stories tall and 10,000 square feet, and it's a huge wedding cake of a house, which is utterly deliberate. I mean, we never really got from, I don't think we ever found that he was seemingly an egotistical kind of guy, really, in the way that he wrote, but obviously maybe he didn't need to be. You know, he's more of a, 
Corleone and just sit back and, and, and not be that uh, explosive a character. But yeah. but the house itself makes the statement that it's all about this is me. I'm the, one of the wealthiest people in the region, and this is my statement. It's imposing, and it catches your eye even you know 150 years later. I, I will say it was on the absolute outskirts of town when it was built. Yes, yeah. it that's was not point, in yeah. the middle. Uh, we have some evidence of things. You know, people are very impressed with the maybe the gas lighting, the gasoliers that were in the house. Found newspaper articles or, or excuse me, announcements that said things uh, that uh, the Wilmington Gas Company was going to be running um, pipes to the the what say the denizens in the dark end of town up to Fifth and Market right at the time the house was being built. And of course, I think John Taylor, John D. Taylor, who was a relative, was on the board. So you can just imagine. John D. Bellamy finagling to get gaslighting into his new house because while it was on the outskirts of town, which may have also said something about them, uh, they wanted to have the best of the best. Absolutely. (laughs) It was densely built close to the the port, which was at the bottom of Market Street at the time. And then when you get a couple more blocks, you're in the farmland, all the way to the beach and that kind of thing. But because it's built at the end of all these booms, you're thinking, well, he's going to be on the outskirts, as it were. But everybody's going to spot it. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard You're to not miss, miss it, yeah. especially when it is not as developed as it is now. Yeah. Um, now, we like I mentioned, like I mentioned at the start of this, we brought our listeners up to the Civil War with our scripted portion. And one of the reasons I stopped there is that's a big moment for the Bellamy's. They had just built this house; it was a statement piece in very in a lot of ways. But the war is so much out of their control. And they do end up leaving uh, in 1862. And, and one thing I mentioned is that very famous recollection of uh, the yellow fever victims being carted by the house mm-hmm. going to Oakdale. What does the removal or the, the fleeing of the family from the house do to the history of it and, and kind of their ties? I mean, when did the Bellamy's come back to their house after the war or is it during the war? One of the interesting things, of course, is that all of, of John's money was made on the back of enslaved workers. The home itself was built uh, by a large amount of, of enslaved labor, and then they fled in 1862 and left one of their enslaved workers here to take care of the property. So Sarah, who is described as the cook and the housekeeper, uh, who in the hierarchy of the enslaved females uh, and maybe all of the enslaved workers here, around 10 individuals, she would have been proverbially in charge uh, of things. And so they they fled into Robinson County um, near what today is Maxton. They, along with other wealthy families, some names people would recognize, like the Parsleys, um, they went in and all sort of apparently chipped in and rented out an abandoned abandoned college, Floral College, it had been a female college that was abandoned because of the war, and they pretty much stayed there about 100 miles away. Um, we do have some evidence here and there of comings and goings. Ellen Bellamy, one of the daughters who left her memoirs, uh, wrote about being here at church for, the, I believe, the first bombardment of Fort Fisher. So it wasn't that they just completely abandoned Wilmington, but the only person left here for about two and a half years uh, was Sarah, the enslaved cook and housekeeper. That's fascinating. I mean, would that have been normal to have, you know, something that was such a statement piece, as we keep saying, be in the hands of, of someone who was enslaved by the family? You would think that, yes, because when, and I will get to William Gould, but in 1862, when he escapes, one of the reasons that there, it was not easy, but simpler to escape is the fact that because of yellow fever, because of everybody either dying or being sick or leaving town, 
it was easy to get through town because it was so sparsely populated in the middle of the Civil War. All gone to war. True. All these reasons people weren't here necessarily. So this place being empty right after it being built and having Sarah be here would be odd to sort of think about, but um, probably not terribly unusual for the town. And I know that obviously records can be really sparse, unfortunately, for enslaved people. Is there any indication of what it was like for her being the head of this massive house during wartime? Not anything very specific. Um, we could, you know, maybe conjecture and, and imagine that there were still people in town possibly coming to, to visit or, or need a place to stay. So she would have, I imagine, be expected to cook for them, to provide a place for any family or friends that would come. Again, the Bellamy's were coming back. A guy, Nixon, their enslaved butler and coachman seemed to be going, you know, driving them out to around uh, that floral college and then back some. So uh, she would have been, you know, preparing the house if and when they were coming back. And sometimes when we explain that to visitors, that aspect of Sarah being here, they're, they're kind of shocked by it. I often get a question of, why didn't she run away? And a lot of times I'll respond, where was she going to go? Uh, another thing is that people will, people take it one of, of two ways. Usually they take it as, wow, the Bellamy's really trusted her. That shows such this wonderful relationship between them. And I quickly spin it on its head and say, they didn't care if she caught yellow fever and died. They escaped themselves, but left her here under that possibility. Of course, not that we're putting any intention or, or uh, you know, uh, motivation into it, but there's two ways to always think about yeah. that. And they were in a position to do that, to Absolutely. just leave someone yeah. behind. And slavery, you know, as an institution for the four million people over centuries, it's always underpinned by violence. It's always underpinned by fear. Uh, and so there's that aspect to it, too, you know, when you're in there. There is another story of when the Union occupies the house, um, Eliza Bellamy comes back through the lines and comes here. She's the matriarch of the family. And she is served, you know, in her own house by the general, the occupying general's uh, wife. And Sarah's here, too. Serves her own figs, you know, on her own china and all that stuff. So we think about this sometimes as some an awkward tea, right? Yeah. It's a tea is served. With these three people, one of whom was just this Confederate, and died in the war Confederate, her former slave, and the Union general's wife in this house, in the Confederate's parlor. And you're like, what was, it would be thoroughly interesting to find out what those three people thought of that moment, because it's given to a second hand in a diary. Well, because weirdly, all three of those women were kind of the head of this house at one point. You know, Eliza Bellamy, they built it. Sarah was kind of, in a weird way, the head of the house. And then once it's occupied, it becomes the home of someone else for a while. Yeah. Uh, I would love to be a fly on the wall for that. It couldn't have been more awkward to be, you know. And what would Sarah have thought? This was a former owner Mm -hmm. back in the house who she might work for. But it's just, yeah, we have no record of why, how that went down. So when do, you know, Wilmington is captured by the Union in 1865 after the fall of Fort Fisher, fall of Fort Anderson, all those stories we've talked about on the show before. When do the Bellamy's fully kind of re-intertwine with the history of this house? Because it does become, when they took the city, they took the house, and the house is a grand place that you would want someone of status in your army to be stationed at. So how do the Bellamy's get the house back? It's the regional headquarters and the... Um, the regional commander, Joseph Hawley, finds it, but Bellamy has to get a pardon because he is such a big confederate mm-hmm. in order to get his house back, his petition the president to do it. So. Well, and we some interesting 
um, information that just really, I think we kind of uncovered it in the last couple of years, um, was that we never knew how active John Bellamy was at petitioning General Joseph Hawley, who was here, to come back to the home. And we'd always had half of a, a, a correspondence, and it was General Hawley writing to another officer saying, oh, John D. Bellamy has written me from another county. And he describes him as, you know, a, a rabid secessionist and calls him all sorts of things and says, I have, I have uh, responded to him saying that he has made his bed the last four years. He will lie in it a while. I have no place to take him in the lines of Wilmington saying I wouldn't let him in town. Well, we'd never seen what did John Bellamy write and ask him. And we finally uh, had that come to light, uh, looking at some um, Library of Congress documents, where John Bellamy did write him and actually all but begged General Hawley to let his family come and live in just a small portion of the house. He offered to share the house with him. He kind of, he asked him for one of three things. The, the uh, best thing he wanted was to come back and have part of his house. He said, my family and my children are, are crying for bread, he wrote. Another thing was, let me rent a house in Wilmington or just come back to Wilmington with my family. And the third option that he maybe was the least desirable, but still would have been better than the situation they were in, was to have his, quote, property at Town Creek back, which would have been Grovely, the, uh, the produce plantation there in Brunswick County. And then apparently what Holly wrote back was, no, you've made your bed, stay over there. So at some point in time, he does seem to relent and let them come back. But they don't really get the house back and get fully back into the house until September or October of 1865, uh, after the federal troops have finally left and the matriarch Eliza uh, wrote that, that um, there was dust everywhere, the basement was a hog pen, but her uh, mirrors, her mantles, and her gas fixtures were very little abused, and she was happy about that. And of course, anyone who's visited knows the story of the, the, cigar, the cigar burns on the marble. There's only real marble on two mantles in the house. John Bellamy was quite the frugal man. Um, and so there are some stains there that have never come up, and supposedly Eliza Bellamy even scrubbed those herself uh, that were again, supposedly from the cigars and pipes of the rude Union soldiers who just tamped them out on the mantle in the summer of 1865. It's, it's funny to, to think of John Bellamy as a frugal man when you've seen this house. Um, right. But it's all about the details. You know, this this is a very, again, imposing house, but when it comes down to things like mantles and marbles and everything, like that's where the money is. And so uh, that's interesting to, uh, to say that of someone who built it. It is. And when you think that in 1860, they went to New York to get the fixtures and fittings, but that for the double parlor, though, that's the bit that they're uh-huh. showing giant mirrors and the carpeting and all the rest of it and the piano of the time it's also interesting when you think about if they're coming back um it wasn't that long after this you know the most devastating war which some of the bellamy's kids fought in uh that they're actually allowed back to their house at all yeah you know they're huge confederates and you know all the rest of it but because reconstruction begins with we and as lincoln you know said we would need to let the South off the hook to a certain degree so that the American can heal again. Mm-hmm. Um, they did that here, despite the fact that it's, you know, <laughs> they, just, they just fought the bloodiest war in American history. Yeah, there's, it's such a, a weird, that's awkward too, of just having to kind of find the place of this family in their own home and in their own town and in the South, which kind of has to relent in a way as well. Now, before we head into Reconstruction. I know a lot of the work that you all have been doing at the house 
has been to preserve and champion some of the stories of the enslaved people who were here. Because that is that is obviously such an important part of any story like this. But you all have the the slave quarters, which, you know, Gareth, you and I spoke about this before recording that you guys actually say that that might be the most important part of this property, more than the house, because it's such a rarity. Why is that such a rarity? I, I always think so, because while the mansion is grand and striking and all the rest of it, you don't find many uh, slave quarters anywhere, not urban ones, not ones which are restored, not ones which are interpreted and you know things about anywhere. You know, I think we counted once, it was between about 15 and 20, I think the number was, years ago, of slave quarters in this sort of situation. You might find a couple in Savannah and Charleston and elsewhere where this takes place. And also they have it so close to the big house as well. You get that feeling when you're in it that even though it's a well-built building and it might be as well put together as a place that an enslaved person is going to live, you're being watched over and loomed over psychologically by a big white house. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't, you know, that's so obvious. And have that together and to be able to tell the story of all these people who were there together in 1859, 61, then everything changes. And, uh, you know, Civil War starts... One group is freed, the other group loses the war, then they all come back together again. And there's a huge explosion in the middle. To be able to tell that story, it's just invaluable. And that's why the slave quarters on this site is so important to us. Well, and having having it so close is really a metaphor for how intertwined the slave slave narratives are to this family in this house. I mean, we talked about Sarah. You know, you mentioned William Benjamin Gould that we... uh, we did a story on, we did an episode on last year with one of his descendants that really show what, you know, in such a, a rich way that you don't always get, you know, you have names, you have the achievements of what they did. You know, William Benjamin Gould's plaster work is renowned in there and, and finding that out recently, or I say recently, but in the grand scheme of the last 150 years, <laughs> learning that um, was such a big achievement and, and such a big moment. But is the, are these efforts ongoing? I mean, I imagine that this is part of your ongoing research, Leslie. It absolutely is. Uh, we uh, probably, for about 70 years, what was m- mostly known came from memoirs. Uh, there are a couple of memoirs from some of, of John and Eliza's children, and uh, Ellen Bellamy's memoir, Back with the Tide. She actually did put a few names, job descriptions, even describe, you can really kind of suss out some of the, the relationships between her. Uh, and, and some of the enslaved workers, I've always said, you know, from reading that, that she did not seem to think very highly of Joan, which was the wet nurse and her nanny. Uh, she just seems to, to speak disparaging, disparagingly about her where she didn't about others. And so it gave us a lot of information, but not too much really nitty gritty primary source work was was done and then Garrett came in as the director, uh, and a lot of amazing work was done beforehand. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot about stabilizing the house, getting everything ready, and then, of course, the long restoration of the original slave quarters. So it's really been, I think, since about 2014 that we have been in a position to really put that effort back to it, and it has paid off. There have been primary source documents that have come out. We've actually, in the last couple of years, uncovered enough to have a whole new printed document a brochure a takeaway brochure about the enslaved workers with more in-depth biographical sketches on some than we've ever known before some of the uh the evidence was just waiting to sort of 
be looked at in a different way of writing here or there on site, you know, a signature on a door, uh, some different things that have led to more. There's still absolutely more to be done. The hardest part is I don't know if and when more information will come about. This site is also so important because the complexities of urban slavery were so different. Mm -hmm. The opportunities, the complexities, the situations are so complicated that we would never be able to wrap our minds around it if we couldn't go back and be a fly on the wall. And even then, we wouldn't be able to truly comprehend it. But what most people see before they come to this site or what they've experienced is rural slavery. It's it's what they've seen in Hollywood, on different movies. It's where they visited. And so to have this authentic setting with the original slave quarters and to be able to talk about the nuances and the complexities of that urban slavery and then the, the subsequent reconstruction, because you've got all these relationships between the now free former enslaved workers of the Bellamy's, who some, from our evidence, seem to be living less than a block away. They really would absolutely have kept in, in uh, uh, you know, known and seen one another. And so I can't imagine what that would have looked like. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting to think about. We, we, and we kind of introduced that idea because you're right. A lot of people think of, you know, picking cotton on, on, a, on a rural plantation. That is such a, uh, an unfortunately iconic image of slavery from this time period. But when we did our William Benjamin Gould episode, we talked about how he lived in a house downtown that was owned by Nixon, who was his, uh, his owner. And that is such a different, starkly different idea of what slavery was when you are yourself walking around Wilmington and thinking about how slavery would have been here, not just out in those rural areas. We did a symposium years ago with two UNCW professors on the differences between urban and rural slavery. The question, which is a question which you just said, is who had more autonomy? Who's more free? No one was free. Slavery and you're always being watched and always everything else that happens there. But are you more autonomous? in a rural setting or an urban setting, just to show the differences of the way that all that kind of worked here. And when we go through this place and we talk about, you know, how you were watched and how you were in this small half acre kind of space, then people get some of the complexities of what slavery was all about. You know, the social, economic, sociological sort of institution that it was. Um, like we're talking about how the kids who were here enslaved would have worked and interacted with children over there, Leslie wrote this fifth grade tour that we have, which is a day in the life of an enslaved child and an enslaved Bellamy, white and black, and how they went through their days side by side, but they might as well have been a million light years apart. You know what I mean? So we have that kind of thing. And then we have another event that we've done twice now called The Gathering, where we try and rededicate that building. And the keynote last year was uh, Barbara Coleman, her great, great grandfather, Henry Taylor, who probably worked as a carpenter on this site. And that generations of that family go through the first black architect to graduate from MIT to another Robert Taylor. All these, it's a really cool family that ends at Valerie Jarrett, who's senior aide to President Obama. Mm -hmm. So we can tell those stories, you know, all these stories through this site, which is just immense, immensely important. And I'll flip also again, Urban slavery had such com complexities to it that in Wilmington, it was legal for an enslaved worker to have their own home. They did not necessarily all actually live in a slave quarters attached. Wow. The, all the laws from the, the you know post-colonial up through right into the Civil War that were were 
passed by the General Assembly, Fayetteville and Wilmington almost always figured out ways, the, the slave-owning population always figured out ways to get around those, to get sister laws enacted and things. So to say that it was complicated in Wilmington, that the, that the institution of slavery is, is an understatement, something that we will never truly understand. But this site lends itself more than a lot of others to try and yeah. unravel and tangle and detangle and <laughs> retangle all of that. Yeah. The house next door, which is owned by this museum, is uh, a in Oculus looking 1840s yellow house, we found a manifest, 13 slaves, I think it was, in the back, uh, in, a, in a, a slave quarter which is no longer there, which would have been in our parking lot now, in that space. We have no idea what those folks did, why there would have been perhaps fewer slaves on this site than right next door to a smaller house, how they were all hired out maybe by the widow who lived in the house, all this stuff, again, complexity, as you said. Wow. It's just... It just where did these people go? What were their lives like? We haven't a clue. We have the manifest of who owned them, when they were bought and sold, and things like that, how much they were valued at. But that's about it. So the fact that we can even talk about people like William Lincoln Gould or Sarah is just incredibly rare, unfortunately, just to some of these sites like the Bellamy Mansion. When did the, the restoration of the, the slave quarters begin, and how long did it take? The physical part of it was 2013 and 14, but they spent 10 years before that raising the money for it. It's mm -hmm. private donations, foundations, because this place is owned by Preservation North Carolina. So they did a lot of work and with the, uh, the board here. Um, but then when we came down to it, you know, I got hired most of the way through the fundraising. So I got to have the joy of spending the money <laughs> on the restoration rather than having to raise it. Yeah. Um, and it was... A guy, a guy named Peter Sandek, who used to work for the State Historic Preservation Office, wrote a four-volume book on how to do it, with pictures, with paint colors, with all this sort of stuff. And so it's a sort of a preservationist's, um, purist sort of dream in order to take a building that's that important, with that much history and, and a rare untold history, and then rebuild it. So mm -hmm. we took everything out of it that had, you know, had to come out of it, because termites had had it for about 100, well, 70-odd years anyway, at least. And I will say that we some credit has to be given for the fact that that building was still out there to some of the descendants of, of John and Eliza who were instrumental in in ending up uh, stabilizing the slave quarters, I mean, making sure right it, it, the slave quarters original building was inhabited through late 1930s by black renters and uh, lodgers, and then so it was again a used building. But in that meantime, between the 30s and, let's say, the late 60s, early 70s, it had really started to deteriorate. Hugh McRae, uh, Lillian, Boney, Emma, Hendren, they all made sure that that building was not lost. Uh, for whatever reason that they wanted it to remain an intact site, uh, they, they did make sure that that happened. Yeah. And the, the, the carriage house, which is the third building on site, um, did fall down in, like, the mid-40s. And that could easily be... The, the fate could have befell the um, slave quarters if they hadn't put it back together. But the fact that it, one other thing to mention is the fact that it's still standing after not being heavily used and being neglected for decades and decades. The fact that it was so well built, like the enslaved workers who worked, artisans who worked on that building and then built the big house. It's so well built. It's been through umpteen hurricanes and all the rest of it. And, um, billion termites lived in it for goodness knows how long, and it's still standing, you know? And when we took it apart, we found all this cobbling and brick, three bricks thick kind of walls and foundations and all this cool 
architectural features, which just show you how brilliant they were at, at the building up. And the fact that it still stands is just incredible because it, it becomes such an educational tool, but also just visibly seeing just, you know, sometimes we lose some of that in history where things have fallen and you have to reconstruct it, you know, just by telling it to someone. But to show how close it was to this house and to show, you know, the intimate ties between, you know, the, the Bellamy family and the, the enslaved yeah. people is, uh, again, invaluable, I think. It's the value of historic science. Yeah. I mean, you can teach history in classrooms, and that's great. Through books, and that's great. If you come to a site, that's even more so, because you're right there. Lower Cape Fear is really handy to have 300 and some odd years worth of historic forts and, you know, houses and everything else, old former plantations and things that people can visit. That's a big deal. You know, you don't get that. You might get it where I'm from, but uh, you don't necessarily get it all over the states. We're from Texas. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I think that is important because you, we kind of always say this on the show and, you know, we can also tell people through podcasts about history, but I always encourage people to come out to places like Bellamy Mansion and Brunswick Town and Bergen Wright House and all these places because we can talk about it and we can talk about, you know, the people and the the themes of the time and the restrictions and the atrocities and the achievements and all of this, but there's truly nothing like standing where history was happening and, and, and talk about it. I will say one other thing about that is when we do lectures and educational things, to be able to put it in the parlor of these people who were ran on white supremacist tickets for Congress, say for example, and were secessionists and Confederates, and then you're standing in a room with a racially mixed group talking about the history of, say, 1898 and so on. That's a big deal to me when, when, when you know, welcome everybody. You're in the room. They were in the room. The Union generals were in the room. The Confederates were in the room. And that's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's got a cathartic kind of feel to it, you know. You're kind of reclaiming a little of that history somewhere down the line, exercising a few ghosts. I don't know. It's all, yeah. It gets a bit poetic. But it is a big deal when you're in the space. Yeah, it is. So... The Bellamy's do reclaim the house, you know, after hard fall fight. What does this site and the house and the family look like as reconstruction takes hold in, you know, the years after the Civil War? And then obviously when we lead up to some really important years for Wilmington and at the end of the century. From what we can tell and from what evidence we have, nothing drastically changed. It did, it did seem like John and Eliza did have... Uh, Eliza gave birth to 10 children, nine of whom lived to adulthood. And I say all nine lived in the house. Most of them moved back into the house, it seemed like, around and were there maybe the first few years after 1865 through about 1870. And many of the, the sons are going on and becoming lawyers. One uh, followed in John's footsteps and became a, a medical doctor. Uh, one of their sons took over the, the farming in Brunswick County and ended up being a politician there. Uh, Robert became a, a well-known pharmacist in town. Only one of their three daughters ends up marrying. Uh, and, of course, that takes a few years after the war. Uh, John actually and Eliza put the house in her name for a dollar so that on the 1870 census, she is worth more than her father at that time, maybe because it's, she's, they're trying to attract a suitable suitor. Uh, you've got many of the eligible men who were maimed or killed in the Civil War, and so it took her until her mid-30s to even get married. The other two daughters never marry and are the longest ones living in the house, um, Ellen Bellamy, up until uh, she passed away in the house in 1946. But I think Reconstruction, I, I, I honestly think that they probably went about their life as much uh, the same way as, as possible. John is listed back on the census as a physician for the first time, and I've never known if that was to 
actually get money to garner, you know, maybe favor to help his son who is becoming, you know, stepping out as, as, a, as a doctor, but he is listed as a physician again. Or to even um, downplay himself, you know, exactly. as a physician's not that, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, not that much of a, a status symbol at the time. And so, you know, maybe he's just a small town doctor now. Well, and they mm-hmm. do, of course, go from, you know, about 10 live-in enslaved workers to hiring out uh, day servants. They do seem to have two um, uh, live-in servants who are still occupying the slave quarters, one of whom was a former enslaved worker, Mary Ann, uh, that, according to Ellen, was the only uh, the only enslaved worker they kept as a servant, and I'm sure that's just her version of how that happened. Uh, but so maybe that's how their life changed. Maybe there's more coming and going uh, of those servants, but they're still hiring those. I doubt that they're doing a lot of work themselves. The sons, as I say, go on to marry uh, many, many John Juniors are born. <laughs> so <laughs> one, many, as you told me. At one point in time, there were at least three John D. Bellamy Juniors all living. Um, one was Junior, Junior, one was Junior, Junior, and one was Junior, Junior, Junior. So uh, they really like to keep the names there in the family. But some of the sons do go on and become politicians and run for, for office, at least on the side, not not as a full-time gig, but uh, on the side. And, and one of the things I've just been spending some time since we've been closed due to the COVID mandates, trying to dig into a lot more of that primary source research, which sometimes can take a whole day just to look at a few deeds. But one of the things just that's come to light in the last week has been that Marsden Bellamy, who was the, the oldest son of John and Eliza, actually uh, ran for state Senate in 1870, and this is when Abraham Galloway was in the Senate. This is right as reactionary elections to 1868 when uh, the conservatives lost the, the control and many, many black politicians were elected, many from here in, in, in New Hanover County, and just found out Marsden lost that 1870 Senate seat uh, to George Price Jr., uh, who was a former enslaved worker who supposedly worked on the construction of this house. So that is just sort of kind of trying to wrap my mind around the family sitting around in the parlor discussing that political. Losing to a former, yeah, exactly. Well, and Abraham Galloway, for people who are like, I know that name, obviously um, one of the slaves who did escape Wilmington uh, before the Civil War and became a politician and a very prominent man uh, in Wilmington afterwards. Uh, but that also goes to show you that, you know, I think there is this misconception and, and some people fight against, you know, letting this be the, the conception in their mind after the war, but that when slavery was outlawed, that didn't mean that black people then became able to become doctors and all these things. They unfortunately were set up to then take on the roles that they had been forced to take on before the war. So you do, I imagine, see a lot of of those people and a lot of former slaves still inhabiting jobs that they had beforehand because that's the society, that's what society set them up for. And that's who, and it's who has the money. Yeah. That's why one of the things which is kind of surprising when you think about the family coming back is that they're able to come back and establish themselves in, you know, high prominent positions and make lots of money. When they come back, it just goes to show how conservative and uh, white (laughs) the culture was in order that they can come and slot back into a diminished but similar role. Well, it doesn't sound like they lost too much wealth or power. I mean, it sounds like they were definitely put in some dire constraints during the war. But once a lot of that restores itself, they seem to still be a pretty prominent family. Ellen said she knew what it was like to starve during that time as a Mm 10-year-old. But nothing indicates that they did lose any significant amount of, of wealth or power or prestige. And 
I know there's some stories about maybe John D. Bellamy paid for some things twice because he purchased certain things with his house being built so close to the dawn of the Civil War with Confederate money. And then the Northern, you know, collectors came back and wanted that. So maybe the columns were paid for twice or something like that. But he was able to pay everything. He was able to to keep it together and keep uh, moving moving forward, whereas Rosella, who was the enslaved laundress here, she is still a laundress uh, living with her husband after emancipation. She has daughters who we just found out within the last couple of years their names, who were females here on site. They were young girls named Charlotte and Harriet, and uh, we just learned their names in the last two years. Well, she, of course, passes that trade on to them, so it becomes a generational thing, but in the same since you have men like Henry Taylor, who were carpenters who mm-hmm. go on, as Gareth mentioned, to, you know, have a, there's his son becomes the first accredited black architect in the United States right. of America. So you do have these different legacies. And from everything that I've read and been told and heard, Wilmington and this lower Cape Fear region was one of the, I hate to say better, I'm going to put air quotes there, you can't see, but was one, yeah. one more livable and one of the more, um, for upward mobility, for possible uh, um, I'm going to try to say po- political power, community power for free black people than anywhere in North Carolina. That was the thing I was going to say as well. Is, is this is the most, you know, by reputation, the most liberal part of the state, and possibly in this area of the South mm-hmm. after the Civil War, Reconstruction until the mid 1870s. It starts to degrade after that, of course, as well. But you have black newspapers, a black middle class, black owned businesses, things like that. A fusionist government mm-hmm. comes up, which comes into play, of course, in 1898. But this is, I don't know if I can say this, it was a high watermark, put yeah. it that way, for um, what Reconstruction could have been had the Old South not, like the revenge of the Old South. Yeah. When they came back in 1898 and reversed all of that, it was such a disaster because it could have been so much more. It was, and you know, later this fall, around what will be another unfortunate anniversary of the 1898 uh, Riot, massacre, coup, there's so many words for it. Um, we're going to finally bring that story of 1898 to the show. We've had a lot of people ask for it. Yeah. And we're going to do it in a way where we get to talk about that that progressively diverse society that Wilmington had become. It had become, you know, as so many people talk about, this 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 example of what Reconstruction could do for the South. Relatively speaking, yeah. And unfortunately, it also has that firm base of people who were always going to push back against that. And they did do that. And I think, you know, just by proximity, the Bellamy Mansion is close to the Wilmington Light Infantry Building that really does become the meeting ground for those white supremacists who then lead the 1898 riot. Is there any tie to the Bellamy's and that event, this house and that event? I mean, what kind of role does this house and that family play? It runs right through here. Yeah. Because John Bellamy Jr. is the congressman running for election in 1898, that all this is based on, in mm-hmm. a way, electorally, anyway. Um, if you read Lorraine Umfleet's brilliant book, Day of Blood, or you read Wilmington's Lie, David Zucchino, um, which comes much later, but you'll see the Bell- you know, the Bellamy's and the Crays, who are cousins, um, appear on the White Declaration of Independence right after in 98. They're all intrinsically involved in conspiring to do it. Some of it, somewhere it's mentioned that they conspire in John Jr.'s house to a certain degree, which is across, well, was across the street from here. So it kind of runs, this history all runs right through here. And yeah, the Wilmington Light Infantry Building is two houses down the street. And was a relative's home. John John Taylor's was a relative. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, just to hammer that home, 
you know, John Jr. was, yes, successfully elected to the United States Congress in the election of 1898. And I don't think there needs to be anything else on the set. I mean, that's pretty no, obvious no. right there. Yeah. And they, they ran as white supremacist Democrats. Yeah. Right? And the term is, you know, often used, but they said they were. Mm-hmm. So there's no, there's no editorializing about it. Well, the Bellamy's did become an example of that pushback that once the Civil War's over, everything's fine. They held on to the ideals that they had before the war. They were Confederates. They were staunch Confederates, it sounds like. And that idea is shared among so many people in this town, even though this town does become predominantly African-American and become that progressive ideal of you know what could be a really good product of, of Reconstruction. But yes, the Bellamy Main does, like in so many other things over the years, it does get mentioned in a lot of 1898 material. Well, and that's why with this research into Marsden and looking at him running for the state Senate at that point in time, as I said, that was a very polarizing election in 1870 because the conservatives are trying to get that two-thirds majority back and you know the newspaper's full of vote for Marsden, people writing in on these little local dots because, of course, they covered everything from who came home from school to somebody was pickpocketed and all of that. But there are people writing in saying, he's a true conservative. We've got to take this back. And that, to me, that 1868 election in the, the uh, was writ very big in the rewriting, I believe, of the state constitution. And so that's where I start to see it now and see that connection that runs through, as you just stated, from their belief system to them getting nominated for election and then running for the next almost 30 years up until where John Jr. is then a state senator. And you find that later on, and you know, we have four memoirs, diaries related to the place. One of them is Alan Bellamy, one of the daughters. And even when she's in her 80s writing uh, a memoir about her childhood here, she doesn't lose her Confederate, you know, mantra at all. It's right there, which is why we have like a caveat at the beginning of the book. Remember that this history and these histories that you're reading are through the lens of these people. It's and this is what they think. Yeah. 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 And you don't lose it just because there was a war fought over it. They just, you yeah. know, find new ways to assert it. And, uh, there were lots of good stories about her, too. Supposedly, she would not walk under an American flag. She would only pay homage to the Confederate flag. There were lots of things when about... When the, when the she, stars and bars and flowers. When she died, yes, the, the, the spray of flowers on her casket, which was over the entire thing, was in the shape and the colors of the Confederate flag, what we wow. call the Confederate flag today. That My favorite story, which can never be proven or disproven, was that she supposedly would not take a ride or accept a ride in a Lincoln car of any kind. She was, you know, just trying to, people, you know, these little stories that have popped up to just show how lost cause she was yeah. and living in this house until 1946. Yeah. And a lot, yeah, and a lot of the stories are family history, right? So it's apocryphal, perhaps. But on the other hand, when you read what they wrote down, you're like, mm-hmm. well, I can, I, can, I can go with that. I, can, I get the flavor here. Well, if that is true about the Lincoln car, that sounds like a story that is passed down as a point of pride. You know, your ancestor, she avoided anything that was even remotely Lincoln because that's how she de- was devoted she was. And so, yeah, it does become stories of the family because they're proud of, of holding their values despite losing a war, which is at the core of the Lost Cause movement. That, you know, just because they, you know, the Confederacy in the South lost the war, that didn't mean they lost the South. And that's what they were always trying to really reassert and make sure that everyone remembered. And they did. And they did. They contributed financially to a lot of the monuments that were erected around the 
turn of the century that we're having a lot of conversations about right now as well. Yeah. So they still threw their money and power around as long as they could. Well, I want to talk about the, the Bellamy's legacy, uh, you know, really tied to the Civil War and, and the Confederacy, because I know it's a lot of questions that you guys get a lot now. But I want to get us through the 20th century. So 1898 takes Wilmington, really drastically changes Wilmington, uh, especially its African-American population. And it, it closes out really this, this century. What does this house and this family look like as we move into the 20th century? I mean, do they continue to be powerhouses in the Wilmington community? Things actually change, I think, a lot because 1896, John, Dr. John D. Bellamy dies. Uh, Eliza dies in 1907, his wife. The two unmarried daughters, one was also named Eliza, but I think just went by the nickname Eliza, and then Ellen, they continue to occupy the house but the house really does start to, they, they don't keep it up as much anymore. Ellen seems to hint that one of the, the gentlemen who's living in the former slave quarter building was doing maintenance for her and she was trading him room and board for that. They do actually, the two sisters, uh, we figured out, they have kind of a bathroom upgrade. There's one original bathroom in the house and they put up all this kind of- On the pocket floor and all that. Tacky, uh, yes. Uh, and some of that may have been done by Eliza before she actually passed away. There was some, some renovating in the house, so there was enough money for that. But after their their parents die, the two sisters who live here, and they say they're visited by their, their brothers and sister-in-laws mm. and cousins, you know, nieces and nephews and so forth. And I'm sure they made sure they did not necessarily want for anything, but the house itself is, is starting to really go down. They convert portions of it into a rental property. So two of the bedrooms, actually they build a, have, you know, a construction crew come over, put a kitchenette for the sisters so they can quit going to the basement uh, to dine and then a kitchenette and a bathroom on a porch and make a rental property. And uh, dozens of white renters, and some being single men, some being young families, rent that out through the 1920s. There were some babies being born in the house uh, to these renters and they, through about the 1920s. And, then, and you've got African-American renters in the slave quarters out here as well with no running water. And yeah, they don't get no the accommodations. No electricity, no running water. There yeah. were at least two. Uh, so there's this early Airbnb here at the Bellamy Ranch. <laughs> and then the some of the images we have from about the 1930s and things really show the grounds and gardens starting to really deteriorate. Yeah. By the time Ellen passes away in the house, just shy of her 94th birthday in 1946, there's broom corn growing, you know, as high as an elephant's eye in the front yard, and it, it really was sort of a shell of its former self. It yes. just kind of really shuttered uh, and kept close. They, the, they did have, um, what was it, the Colonial Dames did meet in the, mm -hmm. in the home uh, in the 1920s or 30s. And later on, there's an antique store in the basement as well. But remember, we were talking to uh, two people who were on our board, Hugh McRae II, who was the mm -hmm. grandson of Hugh McRae of the park and all the other things that... I'm sure we've covered in, in other uh, stories, but Hugh too and his cousin Lillian Bellamy Boney used to come here. And when we had board meetings and they were still alive, they were alive until just a few years ago, you could turn and ask, what was this place like in 1930, whatever, when they came and visited their aunts here. And they said it was a dusty, spooky, dark place because they had these huge drapes and the shutters closed and all that. And it was kind of fun for them as kids, in a way, to go into a dark, big old house like yeah. this, but also spooky and nothing like it used to be. And we kind of wondered whether or not part of that was because all the other kids had moved away. Now, Robert only moved into what is now the parking lot, a great big house there, and John Jr.'s house was basically across the street, corner of 6th. But 
still two people in this 10,000 square feet is going to, that's just, a, it's amazing. It's not been now. It's a, it's like Grey Gardens. Yeah. Yes. I call them the Grey Gardens of Wilmington yeah. because the two sisters, Eliza and Ellen, were sort of known from what I've read and, and surmised to be quite eccentric, you know, again, walking out of their way to avoid the, the, the American flag and so forth. And that they just, that's exactly how I've always heard her describe yeah. them on tours. And some people get the reference and I get a little chuckle. Some, well, some especially, don't. <laughs> especially like the blinds closed and, and, you know, them having family around, but still being their, their eccentric selves. I mean, that's the first thing I thought of when I was, it not only heard that before um, when I was reading it, but also just the way you're describing it now, it does seem like that because just like Gregor, they shut themselves away from the world. Uh, because it's not the world they grew up in. And that's a big part of the Bellamy kind of thing is the world outside their front door is not the Wilmington that they remember when their parents were alive. So, you know, it's easier to yeah. hold yourself in and remember the good times in what's left of the house. And so in 1937, Ellen decides that it's time to write her memoirs. Right. And she has a, I think, believe it's a young teenage guy from somewhere in town of family she knew comes in. And he has a typewriter or whatever. And takes dictation and is, can't imagine what he's doing coming to this crazy you know right. house with this old old lady you know she was again an old lady in her in her bed she was bedridden for about the last 10 years of, of her life so she's stuck in this bed lots of reading material so this has got to look mrs kind of havisham coming yeah, coming here and and we've always been told or, or heard or thought that that her memoirs Back with the Tide is a reaction to Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind, Back with the Tide, oh, it had come out. And supposedly she did not like it. She thought that it was, quote, fiction and romance. And so she set out to write the real trauma and tragedy again, where she wrote, she knew what it's like to starve in this. And so she spends three years uh, mm-hmm. writing these, these memoirs as an 80 some odd year old woman. And in 1940, publishes them, has them actually published while she's still alive, signs copies for people. Because From the bed? Uh, probably, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but she just, had a phone in there, so she probably called people and had them come over. Oh, no. But just so you, exactly what you said, you've really hit the nail on the head with, they shuttered themselves in, they, they kept things around them that reminded them of their childhood and those former bygone days. And then she wrote it all down too, to make sure book, nobody forgot that it. The book has threads of the lost cause all running right through it. I mean, if you think about when she's she's born, civil it's the Civil War period to World War II, more or less, in there and the Great Depression in between and everything else in 1898. So the amount of changes that she has seen through her life, oh, yeah. and yet she doesn't, according to, I mean, if you read the book, doesn't evolve in her thinking, right. particularly from, I mean, she's throwing it back to when she was a kid, but... That's the way she wants to see the world. Well, her it doesn't sound like her family was interested in changing. They had the support of very prominent people in Wilmington to hold on to those ideals. But also when you have this house and you don't really have to go anywhere. I mean, it sounds like they wanted for something, but it doesn't sound like she ever knew the idea of starving ever again. That, you know, it's hard to change your ideals and change your mind when your life is in this house. I mean, it, that's because it's... Yeah, that's what yeah. they always knew. Absolutely. And then when she passes away, as I said, 1946, it's left to almost two dozen or maybe even more. I knew there was way more than that as well. But yeah, yeah it, but it's a whole bunch of people who dozens. Have, have a claim on it. Yeah. <laughs> dozens of, of nieces and nephews and, and, and relatives, none of whom want to move into this rotting home. You, you're looking at 1946, and this is post-World War II suburbia. Everybody's mm-hmm. kind of going out. But they hold on to, to the property. They keep it. And then these the, kind of the... 
the family members that sort of end up rising to the top are the three great-grandchildren that we've already mentioned, right. Hugh Two, Lillian, and then Emma Williamson Hendren. And I they believe it's just a marriage for that matter, yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to leave mm-hmm. this Mary out. But they really mm-hmm. then t- take charge of, of the stabilizing, of the, the beginning initial fundraising. They actually create Bellamy Mansion Incorporated somewhere in the, the 50s, I believe, at first. there was a. They're getting together with that, yeah, if- Finalizes in 72, right? But it does finalize in 72, about one month before the arson attempt on the house. So before we talk about the arson attempt, I want to ask, I read somewhere, and I don't remember exactly where I read it, um, that it was always interesting that this house was referred to as the Bellamy Mansion, even from the beginning. It actually was not referred to as the Bellamy Mansion. John Jr.'s house, which would, as Gareth has mentioned, would have been diagonally across uh, Market Street from here was actually written up and described in town as the Bellamy Mansion. Okay. And so I found an article where it, where it actually went in depth because his house mm-hmm. also uh, burned to the ground in August of 72, most like maybe by, again, arson or, or something mm-hmm. of that nature. But uh, the full description of his home, which was sound, seemingly amazing and had a ballroom on the third floor and all that, that it was, was a, described yeah. as the Bellamy Mansion. It was a cabinet and then they put the Queen and it. Uh, he did it towards the beginning of the century, that century, and then put it called the Helmet House. It had what looks like a huge rocket ship kind of thing with a minaret on it, which he added later on. This one in those old postcards, if you look in the library, is the Bellamy House in a number yeah. of them. I have one, which is why I asked, because when I was reading, I thought it was interesting that there was this reference to it as the Bellamy Mansion, because calling something a mansion is so interesting. But it does seem, I think that's interesting, when did it become the Bellamy Mansion after his burns down or did it somehow assume the title over time? I mean, they may have shared that role at some point in time because some of the old postcards do seem to, to refer yeah. to this as the mansion. But I, I don't know if that was some sort of semantic effort by the great-grandchildren at, in not starting in the 70s or so to try and get the, the funds, yeah, the fundraising, because they were really boots on the ground. You two had put together a slideshow, and he had his speech, and he was going to different Rotary clubs and different meetings, and really tried to convince everybody, starting in, in the seventies, that that this was a place to save and a place to to open and, and interpret, and uh, you know, maybe not for the exact same reasons we we are still here today, but but that's when it really he started peddling the museum yeah. idea. I wanted to save that site, and it's funny because they wanted to save that site. Right before it burned, of course, and that, yeah. that was kind of an ironic moment because the history were in the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, in Wilmington is kind of a, another, a yet another turning point. It is. And so what you're referencing is the era that is defined very much by the story of the Wilmington 10 here in, in, in Wilmington. Uh, and so what is that story and how does it tie to the Bellamy Mansion? Because the Bellamy Mansion becomes, you know, in a way, kind of a casualty of the unrest of that time. And I would I definitely say anybody interested in, in a really good read on that, Kenneth Jenkins' book on yeah, the yes. Wilmington 10 yeah. is, is a great uh, must-have on that. And, and, and Gareth can, can speak to this too, but Wilmington was really never quite the same, of course, after 1898. Yeah. But then it got a whole other, in my opinion, reset with the assassination of Martin Luther King mm-hmm. Jr., who was supposed to be here in Wilmington doing a voter rally at Williston. He called, said, I cannot leave the sanitation strike in Memphis days, is killed, is murdered. Uh, there was some rioting here that rivaled some of what was going on in other cities. And just a handful of months, and he's assassinated in April, the graduating class at Williston, 1968, they shut the doors. That's mm-hmm. it. And so the integration of schools that had, from what I've read, barely maybe started in the 64-ish, but then kind of stalled out, all of a sudden gets this, this new push 
the black, you know, which w- people were so proud of Williston, you know, mm-hmm. a, a source of pride, it's closed. Now all of the, the black students are going to uh, uh, New Hanover High and Hoggard. They're being um, left out of things like sports and extracurriculars and honors classes. And, and they're not happy about it, rightfully so. And so then that unrest in the schools and that very tumultuous integration starts and is still going on, 68, 69, 70, 71. And then you have Ben Chavez come, being brought in to help with, uh, they were doing absentee outs, you know, real peaceful types of protesting. And then you get, of course, to the arson and the, the small riots and everything that went on with Mike's Grocery and with Gregory. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I mean, we were on the cover of the New York Times yep. when the National Guard was was called out and, and so forth. So it was just years and years of that. And the superintendent of the school system, when all this was going on, was Hayward Cucon, I guess, Cucon Bellamy, Cucon Hayward C. Bellamy. And I, I talked to him over the years, that's his quote, right? That it's a buildup. You know, the Wilmington yeah, yeah. is is a huge international travesty of justice where people get blamed for arson. There is a cop is shot during this period. Other people are shot as well plenty of arsons and things going on around town, and the people blamed for it, this Wilmington 10. It's nine uh, African-Americans and one white woman on the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the group, and as it turns out, the jail between what, seven and 11 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's all completely fabricated. Yep. Uh, and when you read the manifest, you know, the, the, the list of jury selection, it's like the guy is picking who is a Klansman. Yes, is this a, a person who will be on my team, as it were, in terms of convicting these people. And so the travesty of justice happens, and then then we get to the point of the fire here. And Hayward, when I met him, whenever that is, six, seven years ago before he died, um, was telling me, and he got a shout-out from the Wilmington 10 remaining ones at UNCW once upon a time as a great guy for doing his job and integrating the schools in an incredibly difficult time. Well, that was what his thing was. He was taught so much flack because he was actually executing the, the integration. Yes which was not what people here wanted. Not necessarily, no. Uh, and No. And But he got the shout-out from them. The, it was the meeting where uh, Bill Sappho apologized on behalf of the city to the Wilmington 10. But Hayward was saying that at the time, people were burning crosses in 972 on his front lawn, right down here, at, at, which is, he was at church in uh, Front Street, because he was doing his job and integrating the schools. And that's like no time at all ago, really, when you think about it. But he also said that his opinion, and it's just his opinion, uh, and he wrote it down, we've got the little pamphlet he wrote about it upstairs, was that the Bellamy House, this one, uh, was probably burned and no one was ever caught for the arson. Definitely arson. But you could look at it two ways. One was that maybe African-Americans or supporters of the African-American position may have tried to burn it down because it was a symbol of the Old South. And it was going to be perhaps restored or whatever. Mm-hmm. That might be a reason to, burn, to somebody to want to burn it down as a symbol. The flip side that, that Hayward told me was perhaps white supremacists, Klan, whoever, may have tried to burn it down because his name was associated with it and a headline in the paper and because he was integrated in schools. And maybe they tried to burn it down because it was his house or his relations house. And it's interesting to figure that there's no answer to that question yet until somebody leaves us a diary one day. But it's interesting to think about how history, when you don't, is inconclusive. And we're talking about earlier, we don't have all the research, and we don't have all the answers, and we never will, even though we'll keep digging and digging and digging. But in that story, you can see it completely from opposite directions, and both of them could be right. 
Well, what's interesting is Hayward Bellamy is not the closest branch to the Bellamy family on the Bellamy tree. And that's that's what's so interesting that if it was because the Bellamy name was in his name and they're like, there's that house we have to that's that's a target for us. What what is Hayward Bellamy's relation to the actual Bellamy family? I, I did look into this because we really wanted to know and we knew it was not close. I did track them back uh, actually not too long ago and I don't I don't have it memorized but they are distant cousins somewhere going way back in South Carolina it goes mm-hmm. back to probably at least Dr. John D. Bellamy or before and so maybe uh, you could think of the, like John Jr.'s sons being the peers or whatever of Hayward that about that same age they would have been very very distant cousins the way I describe it is they they weren't having Thanksgiving together in the house or anything they you know maybe they realized they were related I don't even know but I I do point out on tours and and have looked into that every prominent house that had a Bellamy connection in this 1972 was vandalized broken into or at arson attempts or or success like at John Jr.'s house so there did seem to be targeting uh, these these again prominent Bellamy connected homes, and it's a big yeah, it's a big disparate family because yeah. I, I was just in uh, Calabash the other day, and I saw somebody running for school board or something, and his last name was Bellamy. Yeah, and so and of course they're from Ori County, which was a different shaped county at the time in South Carolina. John D was from down there, and his father they own plantations down there as well. So it's a big spread out group of people. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but my, one of my friends is Hayward Bellamy's granddaughter. She used to work with me at the Star News, Cami Bellamy, and she would talk about the stories that he told her about those times of the, the violence that was brought literally to his front yard with burning crosses and everything, but also having to deal with the fact that, you know, they aren't the closest relations, but because of that name, they get closely related at that time when people were looking for a target or an a source of, uh, to, you know, exact revenge or, or exact some of their frustration. And, uh, and so, yeah, the Hayward Bellamy took the brunt of that a lot well, just for his role. Absolutely. And symbolism, you know, we're finding out right now, right? Mm-hmm. Symbolism is a big deal. Like the names of things and naming all mm-hmm. things, parks, McRae Park mm-hmm. and the Confederate monument, monuments outside and all that kind of stuff. It's just a big deal in 1968 to 72, obviously, because of that period. 1898, and then through the lost cause rebuilding of all those monuments, as it is now. I mean, this, the history is cyclical. It, just, it works like that. I want to ask before we move on, what was the damage to the house from the arson in the 70s? Extensive, yeah. extensive damage. Uh, now, luckily, it was in the middle of the night. Somebody saw something. Was coming was back from coming, dark, Yes, yeah, coming back yeah. from having a drink. And luckily, there's always been a, a, a fire station nearby. And so that they were able to, to get uh, firefighters here quite quickly. The, the spray uh, from, you know, the water and everything, the damage mm-hmm. from just putting it out was extensive down into the basement. The smoke damage that went up from the main to the to second level. Because what, what happened was that some the people who were trying to burn the house down seemed to throw milk, plastic milk jugs with metal lids on them where they poked holes in them and filled those with gasoline. So those were kind of thrown Molotov cocktail style in. But there's also evidence from the, the, the fire investigation that there were gas canisters that were actually, they were inside, there were some over in the parlor, central, right underneath some one of the gasoliers that really burned hot, but also maybe around out in the breezeway area. They intended to burn it to the ground, and it really, I think, was only because 
someone at two thirty in the morning saw it yeah. and stopped it. And so when the when eventually the the great grandchildren that we've mentioned end up deeding the property and giving it to Preservation North Carolina in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and then Preservation North Carolina set forth on multi-year extensive, extensive restoration back to the 1859 uh, look, or 1861, excuse me, look of the house. They actually left things deliberately. We have what we call kind of a preservation term. Truth window. The truth window in the in the, the um, office area, the study area, where it's a piece of plexi in mm-hmm. front of those charred, charred piece, pieces of the, the lathing that were behind that. So you can see that that damage there. It, banisters upstairs. The banisters uh, were some of the wood was left scarred uh, on the upstairs. So you can see where just that heat and that smoke, the, the heat damage really that made it scale like an, an alligator and peel off four left there very deliberately. And I heard somebody say you can trace the history of the house by just going up the banister because you get to the, what part had to be kind of restored and in some ways Rebuilt, and then you get to those four original ones that were left scarred, and then everything else above that is yeah. completely original. So you can really follow that through the house. One of the gasoliers melted, and it was brass, so you can imagine the heat. Oof. One of the slate mantles crumbled apart, and it really, it really was uh, uh, almost yeah. gutted. And one of the, one of the things about my saying that apparently it was a rite of passage to come in here because if you think about it, from 1946 when um, Alan dies. Through the 70s, it's pretty much empty. It's called the Grey Ghost and all this sort of stuff, and it has this mythology about it. People that I've talked to who lived here, uh, you know, then would try and come in here, and it's an old spooky house on the corner. It's empty. We're going to come in. And, it's haunted. Yeah, yeah it becomes the haunted house. It becomes the haunted house part, right? Um, but the fire may have been saved by the fact that a lot of it was boarded up, including the top floor probably had a piece of plywood or a door or something like that. Uh, blocking the entryway. So the way that this house convects naturally, which is the way it was designed, is, you know, the air comes in at the breezeway level and goes out the balcony on top. Well, that was kind of blocked, so the chimney effect didn't happen. So perhaps that would have made it burn even faster. Mm-hmm. So little little things like that, like which mean that, that unlike John Jr.'s house and then in, was it, 80, uh, Robert Bellamy's house next door, didn't go whoosh, straight up. Wow. So Preservation North Carolina is deeded the house. They work on the restoration and, you know, to bring us to today, it is now a museum that you guys are still working on, you know, strengthening and deepening the story of the family that lived here, the slaves that lived here, you know, and worked here and helped build it. But also all that history that comes in those years after when it was lived in by various relatives and then when it was empty. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary as a, a museum under the stewardship of Preservation North Carolina last year wow. uh, opened april 1994 so mm-hmm. april of 2019 and that was why it was very important to have the gathering to come back to uh the first gathering for the slave quarters was about that actual restoration and opening it to the public the second one what, five or six years later was to to really honor them and all that we had learned about who they were as mm-hmm. individuals and so we really tried to to commemorate that as, a, as as our time as a museum you know 25 years and, and we see now when we were open, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, over 25,000 visitors. It's always Garrett's good line, about 25,000 visitors a year, plus or minus from 50. 50 states and 50 countries. <laughs> yeah, also I like it. Through here. Yeah. And one of the things that they did at the beginning of this for this place, which was cool, is instead of a static house museum, like you see a classic house museum, you can think everything's as was, because of all the things that has been through, the being empty, the fire, the rest of it, it's... It's a museum in a house, right? So you have the site in, in more than the house, but in the buildings. 
So the slave quarters we put back, we're trying to think of as a sort of a, a hallowed ground kind of place because it's so singular. Uh, so that is restored to 1859-61 kind of period mm-hmm. with stuff in it. The house itself, we can use in different ways. And if you're going to be a house museum style place in this century, you've got to be dynamic. Yeah. So we had the they had the opportunity, not me, um, to make it this museum in a house model where you can have art shows and you can have lectures in their living room, right? Mm-hmm. And so all this stuff that we do, which kind of brings in a more diverse audience, diverse in every way, um, and all the time. So the idea was you make it a museum in a house and you try to make this community hub kind of idea where people will come here for different things and then they will get the history, first of all, by, sort of by osmosis, if they're here for a jazz concert, say. But then they'll come back and then they'll get the full story that we've been talking about all this time. It's uh, almost like... <laughs> This, this is a rain. I don't know why this popped in my head, but it's almost like when you think about in Washington, D.C., where they have all those events in the National Archives and people, while they're at these events, they just happen to read the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> That's similar to where when you go in the Bellamy Mansion, I've been to multiple events at the Bellamy Mansion that had nothing to do with the Bellamy Mansion. You know, I, I think the first time I ever came here was for a party uh, for the Kukulors Film Festival. But it was also the first time I walked through and learned about it the house and all the things that you're there. And so you're right. It does have that dynamic use. And I think that's important because one question that I, I wanted to talk to you guys about that I thought of as I was researching this is if you really think about it, the Bellamy mansion for so many people is their first stop on a historic tour of Wilmington. It's because it is so dynamic that it's been used for so many ways over the years that it's really the first one that pops up on historic lists of Wilmington. And so Knowing that this might be a first stop for people wanting to know more about what has happened in Wilmington over the past 300 and some years, does that put a big responsibility on you guys? Does that change how you interact with people when they walk in the door? I've always thought so. You know, I'm a, you know, a white Welsh guy who's <laughs> the director of this place. And it's kind of, it is a big responsibility because it's not my lived experience to be on any side of this story necessarily. But on the other hand, as you know, we're historians and we've got master's degrees in this stuff, so we can look at the story and interpret it, and it actually might be helpful to have an outside view as well when you come to this stuff. So you can, but what we do, I think, what we all do as a staff is put the value on the place, the value on the story. Even Preservation North Carolina restored a lot of buildings. They kept this one over hundreds of others because of the story it tells, because it has an African-American, a white story, in one place together. And it's a big deal, you know? I mean, you don't get this kind of experience in that many places. As we've said before, you get on this site, you can learn a lot by taking the tours. And our tours are usually given by volunteers, and they're all former teachers or civil servants or librarians or people who are thoroughly interested in this stuff. And they will give you, and one of the things which is important for us, they will give you an unvarnished, truthful opinion. If someone is, we use the term white supremacist here and there, we use the term that slavery was what it was. We're not trying to make a Moonlight Magnolias kind of mythology of this. We're trying to tell an accurate story using these buildings as the artifact. It's not like Ellen Bellamy is telling these stories at the head of the tour because she would have had a a very specific way of immortalizing her family for people who walked in the door. But for you guys, it's about telling the story of the, the importance of a site like this, but also the fact that it is it was representative of things that aren't very flattering, of, of some right. of the worst parts of American history. Yeah. I, 
when you think about Wilmington as well, Wilmington is a segregated town and it has been for, you know, decades and decades. And it still, to a degree, is, right? Martin Luther King's the Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. All of that, that still does exist to a degree. And if this place can be used to break that down somehow, if we can get a diverse audience to come through here and hear an accurate historical story of who was here, what they achieved, what the horrors of slavery were, who the family were, what their story is going through all this as well, 1898, 1972, all this stuff. I think that's the value of a place like this for this town in particular, as we still are wrestling with all this stuff right now. Absolutely. And all we can do is tell the story as it existed here. And of course, you can extrapolate and, and pull from it. And, and we have to do that because we don't have a, a complete picture. But we're working very hard so that Guy Nixon, the enslaved butler and coachman, then goes on to become Guy Nixon, who marries Sarah Kelly in 1866, becomes a stevedore, then becomes a shoemaker, is living at Fort, on market between 4th and 5th. I have his signature on his marriage certificate. We know his acquaintances. We know as much as we can about him and can tell his story and his truth. It's not, it's, it's not sensationalized. It's not downplayed. It's just here it is. And that's sometimes the most powerful. And I think our responsibility here is just to tell these stories as they were. And when you tell them as they were, people figure it out. You don't have to hit people over the head. No. You don't have to do anything but say, here it is. Unemotional, yeah. truthful, researched. Yeah, the best history books are like yeah. that, right, as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, quite right. It's, it's, you tell the story and you research it enough that you know this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, that you don't need to fictionalize it, editorialize it. You just tell the story of who these people were and how they lived. Let it stand for itself. Yeah. Now, telling those stories is very important at this particular moment because we are in 2020 where there has been a real intense scrutiny on the era of American history that this house was born out of, uh, the antebellum America. And it, it's, it's a really interesting time for not only the both of you, but this property, because you, I imagine, are getting questions. You are on the, on the lips of people who are talking about the African-American history of Wilmington, good and bad, and you're not open. So what is the challenge of telling this story at a time when so many people want to hear it or want to learn more about it? Honestly, this, it, this may be kind of a selfish way to look at it, but being paused is not good during, of course, summertime, and we could talk a whole different one on our bottom line and our earned income and, and all that we've, we've missed in the thousands of people that have not been able to come through the door. Because but it's of COVID. Given, <laughs> because of COVID, that's right, because we've been closed since mid-March. But it's given us a chance to take in a lot of this. This has been some, some rapid change and, and, and some much-needed reckoning and some long-coming. Again, guys, we're talking about those flashpoints that kind of build up. We're in the midst of another one. And it's giving us a chance to take all of that in. The resources that are coming now, because many museums across the country due to COVID mandates, are still closed. So lots of webinars, lots of articles, and the research that we're able to then pull together and help disseminate to our volunteers, to our interpreters, to take in ourselves. I, I'm, I'm not going to say that I haven't appreciated actually that time so that when we do, when we are open again for face-to-face for -face mm -hmm. tours, that we can be better, better poised and positioned and, and informed to help people 
draw those connections from American slavery to exactly what's happening today because there is a straight line. And many people who didn't see it before are starting to have their eyes open to it on one way or one side or the other. And so we might come back with more more polarized visitors than before. And so, as I said, I, I'm very appreciative of the time and the amount of information that other museums, other historians, other people are putting out there so that we can really just soak in it, educate in it, ruminate it, mm-hmm. and then come back and, and, and again, unvarnished, un, unemotional, but that the direct line from slavery to today. It, and that, that's why we're also important, because that's a place to stand in and really take a hard mm-hmm. look and how that still connects to today. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more with that. And it also, there is on a slight frustration, besides the fact of the lost revenue, but is the fact that this seems like a moment when this kind of place is really needed, um, that the story being told. Now, Leslie built, rebuilt the website and put we put on our tour and our lectures and a virtual tour that you get right. led through. So all of that, so people can access what we are about. But the fact that in a moment when, you know, America's discussing race and it's discussing politics and it's conservative versus progressive and all the stuff that we're in the middle of, that we could be helpful, particularly like to me, I've got little kids, to school kids, we've got loads of school kids through here. And you're like, well, right now we could talk about, we're talking about slavery and what Confederate memorialization is, and they could be here and they could see it. And we can't be open because COVID is, you know, what it is. And that's quite a little frustrating that I I feel like we could be helpful. Well, that's the benefit and the rarity of having something like the slave quarters, of having this house and the stories that you do have. You're supposed to be able to tell those. And yeah, I imagine, you know, I think that you would potentially even be getting a lot of repeat visitors that more maybe locals, you know, who haven't been back in years to get a better understanding of this town and this country's racial history by doing what we said was so important earlier, which was being where it happened. Yeah. And and I think that that is the real loss of what's happening right now. Uh, obviously, you know, we want people to be safe, but it's it's such a it's so crazy that those two things are happening concurrently, simultaneously. Right. The you know the, this movement of of more intense focus on history, and then also this pandemic. You know, one is stifling the other in such a, a really interesting and unintended and unfortunate way. I hope everybody's reading like plain histories when they're you know out there. As opposed to opinions based on an idea of yeah. history, maybe. But, but yeah, I, I think you're right. And in, in terms of Wilmington, when we reopen, because international tourism will not come back for quite some time, yeah. what we need really to see is a lot of the local people who, when we hear all the time, I've driven past this house for 500 years and I've never come in. Yeah. It's like, well, now's your chance. So now come in when we reopen and safe come in and we need that support. But we also think that if they take advantage of the history that's on your doorstep, and a lot of people don't do that, and I know that from my experience back in Britain, um, you will find something of value. And hopefully that will be, again, maybe if not reconciliatory, something educational of value so that people of opposing viewpoints can discuss the history Mm -hmm. because they've found what it actually is. There is. There's such a value to having the Bellamy Mansion and, and all of them, the Bergman Wright, the Latimer House, all of these houses that have been able to survive in Wilmington in such a unique way. You know, there's, as you said earlier, there's forts here, there's houses here, there's, you know, we have a number of museums that are going through the same thing. The Cape Museum, the Cameron Art Museum, 
who are feeling yeah poor fisher yeah you know poplar grove plantation is another one yeah that are feeling the brunt of being closed but as you mentioned as we i think we all talked about a little bit earlier there's always a habit to ascribe the horrors of slavery to the antebellum era because that's where it's most depicted in popular culture and you know Unfortunately, it goes back a lot farther, but at this moment, the Bellamy Mansion seems to be one of those first things that people want to throw out as, as, as an example of this time. And, uh, you know, again, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be able, you just want to tell people to please come and let me educate you and let's have this conversation in person instead of in the comments of Facebook posts and, right. and stuff like that. I just, I think that even more so than even in the past when we've done the show, it's really important for me to just tell people that I love when people listen to this show. And I think that it's such a, an interesting way to get people engaged with history, but there is no better way to engage with it than literally doing it in person. And we have so many opportunities to do that in the Cape Fear. And so I, I want to wrap it up by telling people that when we can go back to museums and historic sites and stuff like that, I, I imagine that both of you just want people to come back to the Bellamy Mansion so you can talk about the stuff that you've uncovered in the past couple of months and the whole story as well. And you're right, place-based learning is very needed. It is it is being missed right now. And as and we've sat here today and talked about the importance of this site in so many facets of not just Wilmington's history, but a much broader history. And the truth is we need support now mm-hmm. from people, uh, whether that be a small monetary donation, a membership, renewing your membership, sharing what all of our local museums are doing on social media, attending uh, webinars of Preservation North Carolina, putting out some really interesting, thought-provoking ones that we've been helping with. Garrett will be speaking on one about Wilmington Beaches soon. And so there are things that people can do now to make sure that we are all still here, that the Bourbon Rights still here, the Railroad Museum, the Battleship, Cape Fear Museum, Poplar Grove, all that you've mentioned. Uh, we've been closed now for going on six months, almost, and not know exactly when we're going to get to open. So, yes, we want you to visit when when you when we're back open, but you can virtually visit us right now and drop a little donation if you're able, or again, something as simple as sharing what we're doing and the articles and all of the, the advocacy that we've been trying to get out there it would be much appreciated because Wilmington supports its arts and culture. Wilmington, Wilmingtonians, whether they've been here forever or just moved here, really uh, do seem to, to value what we offer here and what a lot of the sites offer. And we just don't want to, we, we want to be able to open back up at full capacity and still be here for many more years. Absolutely. And it, preservation, because heritage tourism is a huge driver of Wilmington, right? And the lower gear here in general, if, all these sites weren't here, like Cameron Harp, all the ones Leslie just mentioned, weren't here, people wouldn't necessarily come. The historic district looked a lot different than it does. People wouldn't come here, and therefore all the revenue generated by sites like this and all the others, and the downtown and the beaches and everything that you come to see, um, it would be <laughs> problematic, to say the least. And one of the things that we're reading across the state is the potential percentages of museums, small museums anyway, that will close because of this, all across the country actually, because they have such small budgets and they're often volunteer run or very small staff. And without the revenue, particularly this time of year, um, they can't continue. So that is, that's going to be a real need. Well, and I'll say this, the support for places like the Bellow Mansion and the interest in Wilmington's history, uh, 
is what made this podcast possible because people wouldn't have listened if they weren't, there wasn't already that interest embedded in this community and embedded in people outside of the community who know they can come here for stories like this. You know, that is what's made it possible for me and people like me to do things like this. And so it all is this big circle. Um, and so we hope, <laughs> that, yeah, we hope that everyone comes in uh, and supports the Bellamy mansion and, you know, just be aware when history sites can open back up and, you know, if you haven't come in a long time, now's the perfect time because you guys are always finding new things. And at this very moment in history, um, I don't think that there's a better time to just educate yourself, uh, especially as we even move forward and look at other uh, other topics and other times and other things that need to be addressed and um, reevaluated and all that stuff. And so thank you both for having me and thank you both for coming on the show. Uh, this was an amazing conversation. And we talked about a lot and there's still so much more to this house and this family and this site uh, that you can learn. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and our look at the ever-evolving history of Bellamy Mansion. Thank you so much for joining me. Be sure to check back soon for our next episode when we'll turn to a new chapter in our local history book. Until then, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each of our episodes, and all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And if you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth. <laughs>